This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 224. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Today, I have a special guest with me on the program. I'll introduce him in just a moment. Uh, we're going to jump through things fairly quickly today because his time is valuable, and uh, we want to make sure that uh, he can uh, keep all the ob- other obligations that he has on his plate today. Uh, but first, today's episode is brought to you by Guardian Nation. We hope you'll head on over to GuardianNation.com and check out all the great benefits that come with uh, being a member of the fastest growing network of American gun owners that are serious about self-defense. Head on over to, uh, well, ConcealedCarry.com is also, it's part of that. GuardianNation.com is where you'll find all the details about the nation. And also, this is a we're getting down to the wire as far as... Uh, being able to sign up for our upcoming live fire defensive handgun course, three days of the Triple Guardian course, our new curriculum being launched here in the Denver area. If you're anywhere in the area or able to travel into Denver, May 17th through the 19th, head on over to concealedcarry.com forward slash May 2018 Guardian and find out about how to get signed up for the course. I think you're really going to enjoy and benefit from what you'll learn over those three days. And we got courses coming up in other locations across the country later this year. Stay tuned for further details. So I told you I was going to make it pretty quick. So now it is my opportunity and pleasure to introduce to you, the listeners, once again, Virginia Delegate we have with us today. Virginia Delegate Nick Freitas, also running for U.S. Senate, which I just think is really awesome because, sir, I watched your video, as many millions did on Facebook, and uh, it rocked my world. It knocked my socks off. So welcome, sir. Appreciate you being on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Uh, tell us, can you set the stage? Uh, what was this, about a month or so ago? Maybe two months now. Uh, what was going on in the Virginia House the day that this little video clip emerged? Sure. So I, it was. it was back, I think it was around March 5th, um, and, and I sit on the subcommittee, what we, we actually call gun sub on the militia police and public safety committee in the Virginia General Assembly. And obviously we had had a lot of, of uh, controversial bills come through there. And there was a lot of, I think the Democrats brought somewhere in the neighborhood of over 30 different, um, you know, anti-gun bills. And, um, and they had all died in subcommittee. And um, by the time we got to the floor and with the Parkland shooting, uh, many of our Democrat colleagues decided that they thought it would be appropriate to make passionate floor speeches or to put out emails or, or Facebook posts, um, comparing those of us who were you know, just trying to defend the Second Amendment to Nazis and to segregationists and uh, a number of other things. And I just got to a point where I was fed up. I'd had enough. I get really tired of hearing about how we've got to have more civil discourse. And then the moment um, they feel passionate about something, or at least some of these people feel passionate about something, they thought it was completely appropriate uh, to just really slander us and completely take our, our position, just make a caricature of the Second Amendment position. Mm. And so I decided it was time to respond. And it, and it was amazing to me how offended some of them got about just setting up some, what I thought were to be pretty simple facts uh, about history and about this issue. But um you know, it is what it is. And unfortunately, you have some people that where well, they think they can say offensive things to you all day long. But then the moment you say something which turns out to be true, they want to use offense as a as a tool to shut down debate. And that was 
that was pretty frustrating. Yeah. Do you mind if we play just a little excerpt from that speech? I'm sure. Go for it. Because uh, chances are, some some of you out there may have seen this. Now, you're only going to hear the audio uh, piece of this, but uh, uh, hopefully this will refresh some of your minds. And so here's just a little excerpt from the speech. So over the last several days, Mr. Speaker, there's been a lot of discussion about an open and honest debate with respect to school shootings, gun violence, gun control, etc. And an open and honest debate, as I understand it, is one that would rely on data, facts, evidence, analysis, reason, logic, etc., etc. And I'm certainly willing to have that debate. I think if we were going to look seriously at school shootings and gun control, we would analyze things like, why do all mass shootings seem to take place in gun-free zones? Wouldn't it be reasonable to test whether or not the efficacy of gun-free zones have actually achieved what their intended intent is? We'd start to look at most of these shooters come from broken homes. What sort of government policies have actually encouraged broken homes? You can look at left-leaning think tanks like the Brookings Institute that will actually say that some of it can be attributed to various cultural changes that happened in the 60s to include uh, the abortion industry. You can look at a more conservative-leaning organizations that will say that the welfare state contributed significantly to dismantling the family as families became more and more dependent upon the government than they were mothers and fathers in the home raising children. We could look at various status with those areas within the United States and around the world that have strict gun control measures and what their crime rates look like, whether it's Chicago, New York City, Washington, D.C., and others that have incredibly strict gun laws, and yet for some reason it hasn't seemed to stop the gun violence in those particular areas. We can look at the analysis out of uh, 538, which is considered more of a left-of-center data analysis think tank, where you have several analysts now confirmed through the data that they were looking at, not just in the United States, but in Canada, Great Britain, and Australia, that they were shocked that the data did not support what they thought gun control measures would actually achieve. Yeah. So just, just there's just a little excerpt for you all. Uh, that's kind of what you just said a moment ago that, uh, you know, we, we want to have a conversation. Like, we're not opposed to having a conversation or an open debate. Uh, but it seems like that oftentimes the other side on this issue of guns is just trying to beat us down and make, you know, and slander us, make us look you know, like we're just baby killers, you know, little, you know, killers of children. We advocate killing children. Uh, we're, we're opposed to increasing uh, laws, common sense re- uh, legislation on assault weapons <laughs> or whatever, right? And thus, we support the advocating of things like what happened in Parkland. Now, keep in mind, once again, like you said, this was two, three weeks after Parkland. So it's fresh on everybody's minds. And certainly, we, we've, our, heart, our hearts hurt because of what happened there. But at the same time, Delegate Freitas, uh, you, know, you, you, you pointed out some statistics there. Uh, in a general sense, that what statistics show doesn't necessarily support that, control, that gun control equals safety. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And I, and later on in the speech, too, I also point out that there's hundreds of thousands of, of cases each year in this country where a private citizen will use a firearm to dissuade a criminal uh, from engaging in a criminal act, whether it be a, a rape or murder, a theft, um, you name it. So I think one of the things that we have to consider as we're looking at this larger issue is if you make guns more difficult or, or um, harder to access to law-abiding citizens are, okay, then is the government going to take responsibility for the increase in crime that would naturally take place 
again, if the statistics are believed, and I believe they, they can be believed, with respect to how many private times a, a citizen uses a gun to prevent a criminal act from taking place. Yeah. And it, it's this misunderstanding of what the Second Amendment is all about. Because I think many on the left see this as, as a gun issue. And guns are a part of the issue, but ultimately what it's about is self-defense. Yeah. Uh, a free person has an inherent right to defend themselves. And for the, the state to try to take away that right or to significantly diminish that right in order to say, you know, we'll take care of you. Okay, well, I've been to quite a few places around the world and I've, I've studied enough history to see what happens when the state disarms a free people and then says, oh, don't worry, we'll take care of you. It's just, it, it's not something I'm willing to accept. I don't think any free person should be willing to accept it. Yeah. Uh, sir, you spent some time in the U.S. Army, is that correct? Let's see, 11 years active duty. Yeah, and uh, during that time you spent... Uh, a couple of tours tours of duty uh, overseas. That's correct. Uh, two tours in Iraq with First Special Forces Group. Yeah. So w- when you say you've been in other places in the world and you've been to places where they don't enjoy the freedoms like what we enjoy here in the U.S., uh, you're you're not just throwing that out there. Like you speak from a voice of authority and experience. Oh yeah. Four different for what four or five different continents. Um, and, um, and I don't know, over 20 countries. And, you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting that we don't talk a lot about Iraq specifically is that obviously that was a socialist dictatorship um, under the Ba'athist regime with Saddam Hussein. And when we overthrew that, obviously there was an insurgency that took place as a result. And we had a, a lot of difficulty fighting that. And a lot of credit is given to the surge. Uh, and, I, and I think that's certainly appropriate in, in many respects. But one of the things that people don't talk about is that one of the most successful programs we had over there was called the, the Sawa, the Sons of Iraq program. And that's where we started once again going in, allowing families to keep firearms, allowing localities to be able to defend themselves against these terrorist organizations, many of which were coming from outside of Iraq that were coming in and exploiting and harming these people. And when we gave them the ability to be able to defend themselves instead of relying on a, on a U.S. patrol, which may be 30, 40 you know, minutes away or more, uh, they were able to really shut down terrorist activity in, in a, a variety of places. And so, again, I, I've got to see firsthand what happens when, A, you disarm a people and, and you really just leave them uh, at the mercy uh, of criminal activity, of terrorist activity, versus what happens when you, you give people the, you know, the, the ability to be able to defend themselves. Mm. And uh, I think the left oftentimes tries to play this, this false narrative or this false dilemma where it's an either-or proposition. Look, I think we all understand there's going to be people that abuse firearms. Um, but I would just like to remind that when it comes to abuse of firearms or abuse of rights in general, governments have been pretty bad about doing that as well. And, and I think it's, it's important to look at these things throughout the whole course of history. And then specifically with uh, violence in the United States, you know, it, it's really easy to put a tag on it, gun violence. Okay, what about knife violence? What about violence in general? Why are we so obsessed with the instrument, but we're not giving enough consideration to the behavior? Because that's what's really going to address this problem. Yeah, that's a great point, too, especially when you look at uh, just recently in the news, there's been a number of stories about violence in the U.K., and also Australia, but recently there's several stories that, that I've that we've talked about here on the podcast where knife crime, knife related uh, uh, violence, you know, uh, assaults and attacks on people has gone up dramatically. Not only that, but also in a country where handguns are basically illegal. Period. Uh, gun crime in the UK is significantly on the rise as well. 
Well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I, I'm sure there's people that would love to go back and, and uninvent um, a variety of things, but the sure. bottom line is they're here. And, and uh, a firearm is a tool. It is as good or as bad as the person that's using it. And so that's why we need to be addressing issues of behavior. And, but I'll tell you the other thing that I find really frustrating about this whole debate, and, and I don't want to put everybody on the left or everybody in the, all Democrats in this category because that wouldn't be appropriate, but there are certainly some that when you see a tragedy like Parkland or you see a tragedy like one of the other shootings, um, they see it as their opportunity to go after the Second Amendment. They see it as their opportunity to, to massively expand government control. And the problem with that is twofold. One, I don't think what they're trying to do is actually going to prevent the sort of tragedies that, that we're all supposed to be focused on. And secondly, when you look at something like Parkland, the other thing that is so frustrating me about this, you, I could name five or six policy positions right now that everyone agrees on, everyone thinks would be a good idea, whether it's additional school resource officers, whether it's more trauma-informed training, better communication, mental health. Um, those are things that we all agree on and we could get to work on right now. But I feel like some on the left are, are almost unwilling to have that conversation because they see this more as an opportunity to go after guns and they don't want to miss that opportunity. And yeah. at some level, not only is that a bad policy position, but there's a real moral issue with holding up uh, measures that we can and should be taking right now because they want to keep the gun question alive when, when in reality, this should be about safety, it should be about mental health, and it should be about protecting our kids. Absolutely. It, it's, a, it's remarkable to me that our, our nation has even shown that following major tragedies, uh, such as what happened on 9-11, that we quickly, as a nation, united and responded with uh, you know, maybe some things that wouldn't necessarily make us happy, but arguably common sense in that we know that guys with weapons uh, were able to get on, on several planes way too easily and threaten the people on those planes and the pilots and crash those into buildings. And yeah. so immediately we, we, we moved and we took steps to specifically target what occurred and prohibit that from happening again. And, and, you know, yeah, there's been a few instances here and there. We had the underwear bomber and the shoe bomber, and that's why we got to take our shoes and all that off. Thank goodness we don't have to take our underwear off. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's remarkable to me that, uh, you know, our, our money is transported by armed guards. Our politicians are protected by armed security. Our celebrities have armed security. We had this deal with Alyssa Milano just the other day uh, at the NRA convention, and she stood outside protesting guns and yet had her three security guards all armed standing there right with her. So we're, we're, we're willing to accept, and by the way, those armed security guards, I don't know, I mean, they might have some law enforcement background. They might have military background. Who knows? Or they might just be regular dudes. And uh, they're able to carry concealed. They've got permits or whatever, and they're they're packing heat, protecting her from something that might occur. But yet we ha we we start talking about protecting our kids, and it's like we're just banging our head against the wall because that conversation is not going anywhere. The one side oh, just yeah. says take guns away, take guns away, and over here, like I see us as well. Like there's a lot of different things we can do, specifically targeting. The issue, some of the issues, but oh, yeah. that conversation is not happening. So tell us, what do you think we need to do to have this this, this discussion? Uh, how can we 
work together, bridge the gap? I don't know. What's the way forward here? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that, that are really important here. One, I know in the Virginia House of Delegates, we've actually set up a select committee for the first time in 150 years, which is specifically addressing this issue. Um, the state's got to, excuse me, the state's got to take initiative, but we also need to understand that a one-size-fits-all solution, uh, try, you know, imposed either from the federal government or the state, don't be surprised when that ends up being really expensive and not producing the results you want. I think what we need to do is empower localities to be able to make decisions that actually work best for their school districts. Um, the other thing that we need to focus on is that I, I do think additional school resource officers, we've had a plan here in Virginia where we allowed retired law enforcement to be able to go back and augment our school resource, resource officers. We're now talking about doing the same thing with um, uh, ex-military and obviously differentiating between those that are in the military that uh, you know had more exposure to actually using firearms in those kinds of situations versus those that didn't. So I, I think there's any number of things that we could we could work on from a legislative standpoint that would either open up funding or allow for decisions to be made at a local level um, without trying to run through all these state or federal restrictions. But I'll tell you the other the other thing that I, I really hit on a lot. You know, you, you had all these students uh, walk out and protest, and and the protest ostensibly was about solidarity with the students in Parkland, which I don't think anybody would have had an issue with. But it, it was obviously very quickly manipulated, sometimes by teachers, sometimes by administrators, sometimes by politicians and the media to, to make it a protest against the Second Amendment. And I'll tell you what was so frustrating me about that. It's not that they are protesting the government. I am generally in favor of protesting the government for just about any reason. Um, but what I had a real problem with is this narrative where we were telling millions of students around the country that the only way they could affect any sort of positive change was by lobbying the government. Okay, that's a real convenient philosophy if you're a politician, because it essentially teaches an entire generation to believe that you have all the power, and so they must come to you in order to change something, yeah. uh, or they must vote in order to change something. And that's certainly true to a point with respect to, obviously, interacting with your government and, and lobbying on behalf of things that are important to you. But it's amazing to me how, you know, you go out, you protest for 17 minutes, you come back and Hollywood and, and everyone tells you how brave and wonderful you are. Okay, what about the kids in your midst there that are dealing with horrible issues at home that are maybe in, living in abusive environments that have never felt a shred of human compassion? How much more powerful would it have been to maybe go over to that student and befriend someone and make a decision that you you weren't going to find somebody that was vulnerable in your school and run them into the ground or crush their spirit, but you were actually going to come and speak hope and life into that kid's life. Hmm. And I, I think it, it's real convenient for politicians to, to make it sound as if the only power you have as an individual is to lobby your government. That's just not true at all. There are so many different ways that people can address issues that what I think would really deal with the heart of the issue, hitting the behavior, hitting the circumstances, hitting the environment, which, which creates this sort of thing, um, and really addressing that on an individual level. Or, or you had another student that went into his metal shop and said, you know what, I think I can make a device that would be cheap, easy to use, that would allow, allow you to secure a door so somebody couldn't get in from the outside. Um, let, let's once again yeah. teach our kids that they have inherent power as individuals to really change their environment. And, and let's, let's take a comprehensive look at how we address the situation instead of just insisting on infringing on people's rights. Right. And then, you know, kind of going back to 9-11, what I find interesting about all the solutions that were brought forward is that it was a multi-tiered, multi-layered approach. Uh, we hardened security at our airports. Uh, 
there was changes as far as how we operate with security on planes. We put more uh, federal air marshals on board. And then we, we enlisted the assistance of the pilots themselves and gave them training and allowed them to also carry uh, a weapon for defense that they themselves are able to protect their plane. And so it, it wasn't just, one little thing. It's not, you know, like we just tackled this one item, like uh, outlaw box cutters, for instance. It's yeah. we multi-layered, multi-directional. We attacked it from all angles, and we've prevented another nine one eleven from from occurring. Doesn't mean that another bad thing with a plane might not happen again, but we've made it a lot harder. And I think that we can do similar things with our schools. You mentioned a little bit ago that uh, with arming. You know, with the program, uh, what was it, the Sons of Iraq? Uh, what was the name officially? Yeah, Sons of Iraq or, or Sawa, yeah. Oh, okay. So, Sons of Iraq. Okay, I thought there was another piece there. The Sons of Iraq, yeah. you know, with, with putting the power of self-defense in the hands of the people there, you mentioned that that was very effective because then they didn't have oh, yeah. to wait 30 or 40 minutes. It's kind of like the age-old saying of, you know, when seconds count, the cops are only minutes away. Sure. So. I'm curious, uh, future senator, I'd like to say, Delegate Freitas, uh, what's your stance with uh, arming teachers in schools those or or staff members, those that are willing to do so? Sure, sure. So one of the delegates said, well, that's a ridiculous notion, and then proceeded to give absolutely no reasons for why it was ridiculous. Yeah. Right? Again, it's another one of these things where I'm just going to assert something and then try to make you feel silly if you want to discuss it. And that, again, that doesn't help debate. It shuts it down. So- you know, clearly when we talk about potentially allowing certain teachers to be armed, that doesn't mean that every kindergarten teacher out there is going to have an AR, right? I mean, come on. What it means is, is that you have certain teachers. We have special programs in this country to try to move uh, troops into schools from troops to teachers. So we have people that have extensive um, firearms training. They, they've, some of them have engaged either in law enforcement or in the military in some of the most uh, in, intense uh, situations before they know how to handle themselves. Why wouldn't you want a situation where somebody that was comfortable with it um, could go through the effective training and the school and the school board and the school district would just have the option of saying, look, if you meet these criteria and you meet this ongoing training criteria, well, then this is this is something that we would allow. Um, That makes perfect sense to me. But I I think that when we when that gets caricatured as, well, we don't need more guns in the school. You know, I find that interesting because every time someone says we don't need more guns in the school, it's like, really? Because every time there's a school shooting, the first thing we do is call men and women with guns to show up. Yep. Um, so the very idea that, that someone might be there, and this is not something you're going to advertise to the students. You're not going to advertise which teachers are doing it. Um, but it, it also serves not only to, to be able to allow someone the ability to react quickly to, to help save students, but it also acts as a deterrent. Um, there's a reason why people pick gun-free zones, pick schools. They see them as soft targets. And so creating an environment where people no longer see it that way and, the, and that there will be serious, that there will be assistance right there ready uh, to help those kids in, in a moment of need, that makes perfect sense to me. But we're going to have to get back some of the false narratives that have been pushed out about what providing, a, what providing school districts with the ability to make those decisions for teachers to be able to make those decisions, for parents to be involved in the process, you know, of course that's something we should consider. Yeah, and I agree. Of course, uh, it, once again, where 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 seconds count, 
police are minutes away. And I'll tell you, statistically speaking, for every 30 seconds that pass on average in a school shooting is another death that yeah. is going to occur. And so we, you need to be able to respond quickly. Um, I find it interesting. You mentioned that there are those that would say, well, that's a ridiculous idea. It's a ridiculous notion that we would arm teachers or staff or administrators, even with reasonable training requirements in place. Uh, they have nothing to back that, that ridiculous statement up of their own uh, because we have plenty of case studies in this country. There's actually many, many, probably I would say hundreds of school districts across the nation, oftentimes not necessarily known to the general public. Mm-hmm where these types of programs exist. We have the state of Utah that's permitted concealed carry on school campuses since 2003. And the statistics of these case studies would show that it hasn't made those schools less safe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no. And, and again, it's, I, I'm perfectly willing to hear their concerns and, and when there's legitimate concerns, great, let's mitigate them. I mean, obviously they're worried, okay, what happens if a student overpowers a teacher and gets the gun? Okay, great. We can take that into consideration. But why would you just shut down the debate right out the gate and say, well, no, we're not even going to consider it? Because yeah. we have we have use cases both domestically and internationally where we've seen that this can be used to help provide safety uh, for our students. And, and again, if, if we're if we are serious, if that's the goal, if the goal is not just to get rid of guns, if the goal is honestly to try to keep our kids safer. Well, then, of, of course, we need to be considering things like this. And thankfully, our, our select committee in the House of Delegates, we will be considering those things. And again, it's not about the, the it's not about Richmond or Washington, D.C. coming down and telling everyone you have to do this. It's more about removing the restrictions and allowing those localities to make that decision for themselves. Uh, and I, I think that's important. R- return it to local control. Yeah. Let them come up with policies. There are certain things that the state and the federal government can assist with that from a policy perspective if they require assistance or would like training. Um, but we, sh- we shouldn't be taking it off the table simply because a couple of people find it you know, inconvenient to their overall anti-gun narrative. Yeah. To bring it down to the local level because there's no way we can affect the change we need to affect on the hearts of men mm-hmm. from a federal level or even necessarily a state level. I mean, we can have a great impact, perhaps, but when we talk about those those broken families, kids yeah. with troubled pasts that are struggling with things, we affect them at a, at a personal, one-on-one basis at the local level. So I, I think it's true across the board. Um, so where do you go from here, Delegate Freitas? Uh, what do you got coming up? Uh, you know, what, what, what are your goals? What, what are you... Where are you headed from here? Well, so I, I'm actually headed up to a, a forum tonight. Me and one of the other candidates are going to be a forum in, in uh, Powhatan County, uh, Virginia, just south of Richmond. Um, so that, I'm looking forward to that. And then uh, obviously we've got a lot more events coming up between now and uh, the primary, which is on June 12th. And then I look forward to get into the general election. I'm, this is going to be an issue that's going to be talked about extensively. And uh, Tim Kaine has an F rating from the NRA. He's very proud of it. Um, I'm very proud of my uh, endorsements from the NRA and from National Association of Gun, uh, uh, Gun Rights. So um, this this will be a, a hot topic, but I think we've got a way to talk about it that once again convinces people that the Second Amendment is there for their protection. And uh, when when we when we work together on these security issues without depriving people of their their right to defend themselves, I think we can come I think we can come up with solutions that that all sides will agree on. Yeah, that's awesome. 
are you optimistic about uh, winning this uh, election? I am. I am. But I, we're not taking it. You can't take anything for granted. <laughs> the, the way the saying goes is there's two ways to run, scared and unopposed. Well, <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know about running scared, but we're definitely going to make sure that, that we're getting out our message that we're um, I'm showing up to as many meetings as possible, obviously doing as many outlets like this as possible. So I appreciate the opportunity here. And uh, and that's what it's going to take. You can you can have a great message. But if you if you don't have the ability to get it out to people. Uh, then you know nobody's going to hear it. And you're not going to be able to affect the change you want. So we've got a lot of work ahead, but I think we're ready for it. That's awesome. Well, sir, we've taken probably enough of your time. Uh, we appreciate you. We wish you the best of luck in everything thank that you got going on, man. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, we've had a few listeners uh, chime in on Facebook, just mainly saying hello. You know, keep up the great work, thumbs up, things like that. American <laughs> flags uh, yeah. and Matthew. Well, and please. Please check us out at nickforsenate.com. That's the number four, nickforsenate.com, and follow us on Facebook. We'd love to get your feedback. And, uh, you know, the, the reason why the, the media tried to kill that speech that I gave on the House floor by writing some pretty bad articles about it, and the reason why it, it, it did so well is because 40 million people uh, saw it is because people looked at it, they saw the speech for what it was, they ignored the, the articles that tried to denigrate it or mischaracterize it, they shared it with their friends, and that's how, and that is one of the most important ways that we can get our message out and get around what a, a lot of people from the mainstream media would uh, would essentially attempt to um, subvert. So, thank you. Mm. Uh, it, it was awesome. I, I think the reason why it resonated with people is because you spoke the truth, brother. You spoke the truth, and it's hard to argue with truth. And that it, it's when you speak the truth like that that you get statements like you did from Delegate Lindsay that said that your speech shook him to his core and deeply offended him. Well, it, it shook him because it was true, and it offended him because he was unwilling to admit it, is what I would say in response. <laughs> so thanks again, once uh, again, sir. We, we wish, seriously wish you the best of luck. Uh, do let us know if there's anything we can do for you. And, uh, yeah, I know you got to get back after it, so we'll, we'll let you go. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Well, folks, uh, that was, once again, Delegate Freitas. Uh running for Senate in Virginia, and uh, we'll see how that turns out. He's got quite a race ahead of him, eventually uh, having to go up against, you know, assuming he gets the uh, gets through the primaries, having to uh, run against Tim Kaine. Uh, certainly would love to see Senator Kaine uh, upset and removed from his seat. So uh, we'll, we'll wish Delegate Freitas the best in, in doing that, and clearly he is a advocate and a strong friend to the Second Amendment. So uh, it was seriously my pleasure to have him on the Concealed Carry podcast, and I'm sure that uh, many listeners enjoyed listening to that interview. So it is time to uh, wrap up the show today, uh, a relatively short show compared to some of our more, more recent ones, but full of very valuable uh, truth. And so a reminder once again to head on over to GuardianNation.com. Check out Guardian Nation. We hope that uh, you'll be part of the nation. Uh, we just uh, hit a major milestone with, in terms of the number of members, uh, we keep that, I guess, un under uh, uh, undisclosed at this time, but we're really excited to see how that's growing and taking off. Many of you will be receiving here in the next week or so, uh, or at least shipments will begin going out for the this month's, actually this quarter's uh, uh, box, gearbox for members. So anyway, uh, also head on over to concealedcarry.com forward slash May 2018 Guardian to that's M-A-Y 20, 
2018, G-U-A-R-D-I-A-N. Uh, head on over there to uh, sign up for the Triple Guardian. That is the Guardian Essentials, Guardian Standards, and Guardian Breakthrough. Uh, three days of classes here in Denver, Colorado, May 17th to 19th. Uh, we'd love to see you there. We do still have a seat available for an educator uh, for free if you can get here. And uh, we'd love to uh, host you for that. Also, uh, National Train Teacher Day is on the 19th of May. we got a number of, our, of instructors in our network that are supporting that effort, which we think is amazing. NationalTrainAteacherDay.com if you want to go there and learn more and also learn how you might support that as well. It's, that means it's time to wrap it up. So, folks... Uh, long weekend, uh, hopefully ahead of, of some of us mother's day coming up, uh, love your mothers, cherish them. Uh, if they've already passed on, remember them, love them still. And, uh, yeah, so we'll let you go. I'm dropping, uh, my coin, which has our logo and the statement. This is a coin that those that complete the guardian essentials pistol part of our curriculum, you get this awesome challenge coin. There'll be coins also with the other two courses. And on here it says, train right, train often, and train safe. So you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.